Welcome to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. My name is Emily Unity, and I will be your host. Thank you for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard. Our guest today is Dr. Koshik Shrida. He is an environment, social, and governance professional, and has won leadership awards at both national and international levels. He's also a TEDx speaker and is a director on various ethics and charity boards. He uses his diverse lived experience to inform his work and encourages others to build resilience and find their purpose. This podcast contains trigger warnings about culture, bullying, and mental health. Thank you so much for being here today, Koshik. I have to say, when I came across your LinkedIn profile, there were so many acronyms from the awards and qualifications that you have, and I was like, how am I going to introduce him? I don't know what any of these mean. <laughs> Neither do I, Emily. Uh, you, you just call my profile the alphabet soup, eh? <laughs> Oh, the acronym soup, whatever. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> when I read your email, it mm. uh, obviously struck a chord with me and the cultural influences because people call me a, in all honesty, Emily, people call me a weirdo. My wife calls me an absolute <laughs> weirdo because I don't really have a, shall I say, culture. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a nice guy, but I don't really have a <laughs> culture that I can connect with. But in terms of my my accent, my background, um, I, I've been all over the place. Mm. So if I think about my background, I would say I'm Indian by blood, Mm. uh, Nigerian by heart, Mm. American by outlook, (laughs) and Australian by my passport. Um, And so I, you know, I left India when I was two, um, Mm. went to West Africa with my parents. I'm an only child, Mm. quite protected in my upbringing. Um, At six, I picked up a tennis racket. I started being a ball boy to my dad and his tennis buddies. Um, At 12, I became number one in tennis in Nigeria, which um, caught the eye of some talent scouts in the United States. And they basically approached my parents and then took me away uh, from them to a tennis school in the United States. Uh, So I had to kind of grow up on my own from a very young age. And that's when over the four years that I was in the tennis academy in Texas is when I guess the topic that we're going to cover today, um, I experienced quite a few incidents, shall I say, mm. that relates to, you know, mental health, well-being, resilience, etc. And also that cultural impact came into play mm. there. Um, but, you know, very succinctly in terms of the my background, played tennis, played around the world, um, played college tennis in the US, got approached by someone in uh, Australia to come help build her tennis academy for her. Mm. That, that was really my first job. And that's what brought me to Australia. And um, since then, you know, I kind of got sick of tennis, in all honesty, <laughs> due to various reasons, which I can talk about mm. some relating to the topic that we're covering today. And that's when I moved into business. So this is going back to 2007. Mm. I'm, um, you know, I got a couple of degrees. I've worked in this space called sustainability, which is about, you know, leaving a positive environmental footprint, mm. looking after the communities where businesses operate, all while, you know, making sure that the financial bottom line is maximized. So it's kind of that triple bottom line mm. way of thinking. Um, so I worked in corporate. I teach at universities. I used to sit on a few not-for-profit boards. Um, I do some sort of, some, some kind of coaching, uh, you know, for startups, um, individuals where possible, when time allows. Mm. So that's a bit about me. I'm married. I'm based in Sydney. And I'm always on the lookout for the next opportunity in terms of the countries and, mm. you know, where could I move. But I'm really happy where I am at the moment. That's wonderful. Wow. I had absolutely no idea about the tennis stuff. Um, and I have to say, like, <laughs> my, my first ever job uh, was when I was 12 and I started coaching tennis. So All right. I love that you have a tennis background. I am sorry that it didn't end up yeah. to be like the most positive thing for you. Um, but I'm also 
glad that it sounds like you've taken away like a lot of really positive learnings from it. Um, and I'm really keen to dig into that with you. Yeah, but sure. you have such a wealth of experiences of knowledge. Um, yeah, where where would you prefer to start? I guess because of the background that I have, um, you know, there's African, there's Asian, there's, uh, mm. you know, basically the East and the West kind of the intersection obviously the topic of mental health and well-being mm. um, is different in terms of its definition and interpretation, right? Across different cultures. Yeah. And um, every, you would know this better than me, but obviously every country, culture has a different way of looking at this topic of mental health. Um, for me, every culture and every person is different. Mm. Um, and obviously when, when mental health becomes an issue, they face a unique journey to recovery. Now for many, there is there is that stigma mm. around mental health and mental health challenges are considered sometimes in some cultures a weakness um, and something to hide. And so that can ma actually make it harder for those struggling to talk openly um, and ask uh, for help. Mm. Um, what I guess what I've learned, Emily, over the 38 years that mm. I've been on this planet um, and some of the incidents that I've been through, and I'm happy to share one of those examples mm. with you if you like in, as a follow-up question, but... I guess what I've learned uh, through lived experience is that anyone can develop the mental illness, mm. a mental illness, right? In my original culture, which is Indian culture, um, many people actually believe that we should be immune to mental mm. illnesses. You know, they think uh, potentially, you know, people are too smart or too well-educated mm. or have too much money or too few problems to actually experience things like mm. anxiety depression and other mental illnesses. But the truth is, and as, as you would know, anyone can develop um, this issue at any age. Um, and, you know, while you can control some of the factors that can influence your mental health, you know, like taking care of yourself, you can't really control certain things like genetics. And most importantly, mm. you can't prevent some of the life experiences that may actually trigger that mental mm. health issue. Um, and so through the experiences, you know, that I've had, I'm sure you've had, I'm sure many of your audience would have, will experience as well at some point in time. Um, it's basically how do you kind of work through it? Um, how, what sort of support mechanism can you have around you? And how do you actually um, get through it uh, to become, you know, something better than what you were hoping to be before? So, yeah, that's probably what I can share as a, a bit of a starting point for this conversation. I really like that reflection. Um, and yeah, I mm. definitely resonate that mental health can affect anyone in any circumstance, no matter what background mm. you're from. And like, no one's really immune. But I, I definitely resonate with the, you know, my my family's um, cultural upbringing. So my, my dad's Malaysian, my mom's Vietnamese, and they definitely mm. were of the opinion that like, you could sort of build up this immunity with a certain career path or had enough money or something like that. You mm. just, you weren't affected by it or you could sort of explain it away. Um, on. And it, that's just not the case. Yeah. It's really nice for you to learn from that and how different cultures have different understandings of mental health and therefore the path forward is influenced mm. by that. Yeah. Well, how did that change when you moved to America? Like, like the understandings of mental health and well-being mm. there, how is that for you? Yeah, it's a good question. So as I said earlier, Emily, only child, mm. really protected upbringing, mm. didn't really know much about the outside world. <laughs> and, um, you know, growing up in Nigeria, I went to an Indian school. I hadn't really interacted with, you know, Caucasians. I mostly met people of my skin color, um, but I spent majority of time in my house. I'd go to school, I'd mm. come back. And so it was a very structured kind of uh, upbringing, tennis, school, home, full stop. 
Um, and so leaving that at the age of 13 to go to another continent, <laughs> another country where I don't really understand how things operate, you know, different cultures. I didn't know the meaning of mental health. <laughs> I didn't know the meaning yeah. of well-being. I didn't know what are all these things, right? So um, I just I just went to try and see if I could become the next pizza empress um, yeah. at the time. And I'm sure my parents were thinking the same thing. Um, and obviously with the cultural background, I didn't really have any, um, shall I say, guidance or advice before leaving about potential issues that could come up. Um, maybe because, you know, they were also maybe unaware that such things could happen in a tennis school or, you mm. know, where people who get in are vetted based on certain criteria. So um, I, I remember Emily vividly, and I can share this story with you because I've shared it publicly mm. in other forums. Um, 13, so quite young. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, I guess, quite traditional in my dressing sense and my accent. Mm. Uh, it, was quite, it was quite thick Indian accent. Um, and I still remember one evening, it was a few months into my first year at the tennis school, I was basically lying in the common room uh, of, the, of uh, the academy. I was just watching television, just hanging out when my roommate, who was an American guy, his five friends, I basically came in and started making fun of everything that I represented. Um, and they were a few years older than me. Um, at the time, Emily, I didn't realize that it was racism. I didn't know it was bullying. Mm. I didn't know what these words were. I just thought, oh, okay, you know, they just think differently to me. And that's okay. That's what I thought. That's what I told myself. And uh, But then the next day they came back. Um, they, I think they saw an opportunity in my vulnerability. And boy, was I <laughs> a vulnerable kid. Mm. Um, and so this was when I... I believe the real trouble began, um, you know, the, it was emotional and physical. Um, so mm. those very group of boys would come into the room, they'd corner me on the bed, and it was a single bed. Um, they would um, start with the verbal stuff, you know, my accent, the oil in my hair, my skin color, and then they would physically beat me. So, it would, you know, they would take turns punching my chest, my legs, my back. Mm. Um, they would do it solo. They would do it as a group. Even my roommate would punch me. Um, so in a strange way, Emily, I actually at that time, I thought I deserved it. I didn't feel that I was being bullied as such. I felt that I brought it on myself for being different, mm. for not being cool, because I wasn't like them. Um, and so at this time, Emily, I didn't know what mental health was. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know what psychological help was. I didn't know, let alone what psychology was. So, you know, no one mentioned it to me. I'd never been brought up with these things. Yeah. And I didn't know... I didn't even know that I could have probably benefited at the time, maybe mm. from talking to someone. Um, I mean, I did bring it up with one of my tennis coaches, but the response was something that you wouldn't wish upon anyone else to get when they're going through something like this. Right. But the interesting thing about me, Emily, uh, is that I continued to perform well in tennis at the time. Um, mm. Because one of the things that I could do is was I could manipulate my attention. It's like flipping a switch mm. in my head. Um, so I'd basically move from being distracted um, and taking in the world around me to basically narrowing my vision on a task. Um, mm. And in this way, the full weight of my mind's abilities would get behind me. Mm. And so over the course of my lifetime, Emily, over the course of my career, I have learned to narrow my attention, to focus on one thing, one person, one task, one goal. And that's what keeps me sane in a very, what I call a very mm. complicated, very chaotic world. Um, and the reason for that is I think my upbringing I went from being so protected to so vulnerable at a very young age yeah. 
and I had to learn by myself how to cope. Mm. Um, and I had two choices at the age of 14. I could have killed myself, mm. in all honesty, that that was probably an option. Mm. And the other option was to kind of see how to manage the, the issues. Mm. And I chose plan B, and I just went with it. And over time, I've had, you know, I've experienced discrimination and bullying, mm. not just at the age of 14, but in the corporate world, mm. at networking events, <laughs> during my academic career, yeah. everywhere. And it's not just me, right? It's many people. Um, but I think it's the way you handle it. Um, and we probably don't have enough time to talk about the various strategies that I've used. Uh, but I can sum it up for you mm. in what my wife says, because we met online so she mm. didn't know a lot about me and she's gotten to know me over the years that we've been married. And she basically summarizes me, as I told you earlier, Emily, she summarizes me as a weirdo. <laughs> Someone who is very, um, I can be thick-skinned, mm. cold, vulnerable, soft, warm, all within 10 seconds, a bit like the Melbourne weather. <laughs> um, and it's just me switching myself mm. based on what I need to do and not taking life too seriously. Uh, but that approach can work for maybe one in a million people. <laughs> and it's the other 99% that needs that help, that needs that assistance, that needs that connection. Um, and so through what I write or through what I talk or through whoever I mentor or just have a conversation with, I always try to provide some sort of a case studies or examples about you know, how to try and manage these things, acknowledging that this is not for everyone. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that with me. It's absolutely awful that you had to experience that especially at such a young age where you don't have your support system around you anymore you're in a foreign environment you don't understand why this is happening and the only thing you can do is kind of pull your focus into something else and I'm I'm really glad that you found a way to look after yourself at a time where you really didn't have any support around yeah. you but then in your helping other people what I think is really amazing is that you acknowledge that the experiences that have helped you aren't necessarily the one size fits all for everyone else. Yes. Mental health does look specific to each person. And so the way to cope is specific to each person as well. A couple bits resonate with me. Um, sure. So I grew up in a quite domestically violent household um, and I didn't mm. feel like I could really leave the space a lot of the time. And so I would just sort of remove myself at least mentally from the space if I couldn't physically remove myself. Right. But like over time, I found that it was quite hard to switch out of that. I would just stay cold a lot of the time. And it's been like a learning process for me to really learn to be vulnerable again. And mm. did you find that it was a learning process for you um, to like switch between those or did it come a bit more naturally? That's a good question, Emily. And also likewise, you know, thank you for sharing your story as well. Yeah, like I would love to learn more and more because as you rightly said, everyone's got a, everyone's got a story, but everyone's also got different coping mechanisms mm. and the way they're, I guess, put together comes with their experiences, right? Growing mm. up um, and the people that influence them or are in their lives or not in their lives. <laughs> um, and that's why it's really important to understand the root cause or the background um, for putting someone in a box yeah. or trying to stigmatize things and, and so on and so forth. But I guess for me, Emily, um, it's an, it's hard to explain <laughs> because my upbringing is just not common. 
what journey I've been on is something that many parents may not take a chance on with their kids mm. um, in terms of, you know, in, especially in the Eastern culture. Um, and especially if you're one child, <laughs> you don't mm. you don't send that child away at that age. Um, and so from 13, literally, I've I've kind of looked after myself, mm. um, but I've also led people into my life who have been both good and bad. Mm. And, you know, many people will always say, you know, who do you admire the most? Um, but I always say, Emily, that the people I admire the most are the people who have always taken advantage of me physically, emotionally, mentally, who have tortured me, who have, you know, said really, really terrible, horrible things um, and actually, you know, um, didn't believe in me, shall I say. So mm. these are the people um, and these are the people who have turned me into what I am today or made me who I am today. Mm. Um, so I'm very lucky in a very harsh, twisted way, uh, you know, that the, the people, the bullies that I've experienced, and I remember every single one of them, um, if it was not for them, Emily, I would mm. not be having this conversation with you today. So one, at least one good thing came out of what they did to me is that I'm having this chat with you. Um, and for me, the ability to shift uh, into different mindsets it's just the way that I've programmed myself over time. Someone actually spit in my face when I was playing tennis and said I would amount to nothing. Mm. This is one of my tennis coaches when I said I was being beaten. Um, you know, when I was doing my PhD, uh, there were certain issues that came up with certain stakeholders. When I've been in business, there's been certain issues and people go through that, right? Um, and I'm not saying that there's mm. anything, I'm not saying that the reasons for them acting like that with me, it's justified or not justified, whatever it is. Um, it's up to you to determine what your response will be. Mm, um, mm. And so I've, I've always been very mindful of how I respond. I, I really love your focus on resilience building and making sure that, you know, you do take the strengths out of every experience that comes your way. People have shot bullets at you and then you've just added them to make this armor. <laughs> you know, I, I've never... I've. I've never had like a video call with you, but yeah. I still feel the presence that comes through. It's you're exuding this like really positive mindset that you're going to make the best out of every situation that comes your way, regardless of what that is. I just want to say vice versa as well. Um, <laughs> and I, the reason I say that is I've never met mm -hmm. you before. You reached out mm -hmm. to me, Emily, and you wanted to have this conversation on your podcast. I think the approach, mm -hmm. the eagerness, the enthusiasm, the passion, the content, the tone, there's so many attributes, right, that people can easily microscopically analyze and differentiate good versus bad. Um, but I just want to say that, you know, it's, I've never met you, but um, it's been, it's been a pretty awesome 30 minutes so far. And so I just want to thank you for the opportunity to, you know, have this conversation with you. So when you were going through a lot of stuff or like even, even nowadays, when you face discrimination in whatever circles that you walk within now, how do your parents communicate with you about that if you do communicate with them it's interesting I don't really share a lot of I just kind of deal with it but I remember with, with the tennis just going back to that one incident mm. um, we didn't have mobile phones in those days you know I would use a pay phone every Sunday I'd put a couple of mm. quarters in and I'd ring Nigeria every mm. time I would get beaten um, that weekend I'd have a chat with them I would never for a whole year I think Emily I didn't tell them what was happening you may ask why, and I'm in all honesty, mm. I was probably afraid. What I don't know what you know. I've never experienced something like that, so I don't know what how they would react. Right. What would they do? But one Sunday, unfortunately, on that Sunday, something had happened, and then I had to call them. 
So I rang them. My voice obviously was shaky. And then they rang mm. me back. And, you know, mom's mom picked up that something was wrong. She said, what's the matter? And I said, nothing. So that went back and forth. And then she said, seriously, what's like, what's going on? I said, oh, I just had an incident with some boys. And then she said, let me put your father on the phone. Put, she, mm. she put him on the phone and he said, what happened? And then I gave him just a nugget, just a bit. <laughs> Um, and he he's a CEO in a West African country. So people in those mm. you know countries who are top of a business are quite lethal. <laughs> you, you have to be lethal to be a CEO uh, in a different sense, right? As opposed to mm-hmm. being a CEO in Australia or America. So um, he said, all right, hang up the phone. Let me deal with this. So the way he dealt with it is he put the fear of God into someone who is one of the most famous tennis players in the world of all time who ran that tennis academy. But that's, so that's a bit of a, it's a truth, but it's quite, mm-hmm. I, I think today it sounds a bit lighthearted um, because pretty much all the students got scared of me. But then the, yeah. what happened from that, Emily, is isolation. Everyone just isolated me. They called me a tattletale right. and they put me in the corner. Now, since then, I'm not going to say that's the reason I haven't shared much with them, but mm-hmm. the way I see it is challenges happen difficulties will come mm. things may not go your way and pardon my french but shit happens <laughs> um, and the, i guess the way that i look at it is we just have to work through it of course i'd love to tell them everything but they have their own issues they have their own lives they have their own health they have their own worries um, so unless i guess i have a priority yeah. factor or a critical factor priority one priority two priority three priority four Priority one is critical stuff that needs to be shared with the right stakeholders. Priority four is like, ah, I can just take care of it. So I put most of the things in the P4 categories. And that's just how I deal with it, Emily. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I think that it's... <laughs> no manual here. Like the more, the more I'm like listening to you, the more I realize like how you're probably the most independent person that I've ever met. <laughs> and... I've recently discovered that the way that I've been communicating about, you know, my need to be independent is not necessarily the right word for it. Mm. For me, it's more about autonomy. That's right. um, like I, I want the ability to choose what I'm going to do, but I don't necessarily want to be alone or being the only one doing it. Mm. I feel like from my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, like you're your support person. And like, if something is happening, you look inward instead mm. of like reaching out to people and you it sounds like you have like a like a vast array, like an like an arsenal of coping <laughs> skills now, um, which is amazing. Um, I'm actually like one of the really cool like spy warehouse type things. You like go into your mind and like pick out the coolest weapon for the time. Um, anyway, what you said is um, <laughs> you said it much better than I did. Um, I'll give you one very simple example of what you just said that I experienced and where I got quoted as, you know, reaffirmed that I was a weirdo. (laughs) So I, as I told you, I'm in India at the moment, Mm. dealing with two very sick parents. Mm. Um, I actually traveled to India last December in 2020 when COVID was at its peak. So my dad was in ICU. Mm. I got a letter from the hospital that he was five days away from death. Mm. Uh, My mom had COVID and I had to get over. So border force, you know, the whole shebang a bang. I somehow made it. I went straight to the hospital. Um, I nurtured him, you know, did what I had to do. And I worked at the same time. And my boss was, you know, people are quite worried about me thinking, how am I going to cope? But it, I was, it was seamless, right? Mm. I was 
wiping his bottom with one hand and with my left hand I was typing a report <laughs> so um, that's literally how my six weeks went in Indiana and we fixed him but then the interesting thing is my my trip back I came back through six countries um, so people are really worried sorry this is not really discrimination but mm. if you think about mental health traveling during COVID or not being able to see your family there's so many topics around traveling and mm. COVID that is significantly affecting the mental health of people around this world. Mm. Um, and one of those things is certainty around travel. Uh, so my tickets just get, kept getting canceled. And my wife was in Melbourne, mm. absolutely stressed because I was living in Melbourne at the time. She was in disarray. Mm. Um, you probably want to interview her because she's a complete opposite of me mm. and can you know, struggle mm. significantly, which is unfortunate. Um, and I didn't really have a plan B. I was actually quite happy. I took a flight from here to Bangalore, to the Maldives, to Sri Lanka, and then I eventually came to Melbourne. I went into hotel quarantine, spent two weeks, and I had a chat with ABC News mm. about how much I loved hotel quarantine. I spent 14 days, and I loved it. Oh, my God. And I came out like a new person. And and again, my wife, her family, my family, they were stressed yeah. out of their minds thinking that I, you know, because you hear the horror stories about people in hotel quarantine yeah. and the impact on their mental health. Mm. I came out, I had just had a two week holiday and I came out refreshed. I did podcasts, I wrote blogs, I spoke to media, I worked, yeah. I did exercise, I did all these fun stuff. Um, so it's it was about me programming myself to not just stay occupied, but to look at the positives. Um, and the other, the other thing I haven't told you, Emily, is when, when things happen, I always ask myself, what's the worst outcome from all of this? Mm. Just to put it in perspective. Yeah. And what about people around me? Like my daddy always complains about the taste of the food that my mom gives me. And I always say, think about <laughs> oh the people who don't have food, mm. right? Mm. Um, sometimes it's easy to say those things, but it's hard to implement. Mm. But I guess where I'm probably a little bit different to others is I actually walk the talk Mm. Um, you have motivational speakers who will say a lot of things. <laughs> but when you dig deep, you start to unpack certain things. But I guess for me, I'm small, you know, I, and my topic, my TED talk this Saturday is called follow my dot or follow your mm. dot. That's a whole nother example on how to be mindful and just focus on you, what you can achieve in this vast universe of, you know, when you think like that, it's amazing how much, you know, your mental health your physical health and your well-being just becomes so much better. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that is that is my that is my. Um, if you want to summarize my life in three words, it is to follow my dot. And that's it, Emily. That's what keeps me sane. You you are definitely the only person that I know that has. <laughs> everyone that I know has that has gone through hotel quarantine has been devastated afterwards. Um, hey. I've never met anyone that's come out neutral, let alone someone that's like really enjoyed being alone 14 days but you know Liam Neeson just absolutely loved hotel quarantine so, so maybe the, yeah I'm the next Liam Neeson oh my gosh uh, but I don't know if I want to be the next Liam Neeson yeah anyway so funny I kind of have like two more questions <laughs> yeah, I, go for I do it. want to ask you the first question is on your website you've got these three p's there and <laughs> um so passionate pragmatic and purpose-driven is what's written on your website and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about those yeah sure uh, and thank you so much for doing your homework <laughs> sometimes I don't know what I've written or, or said but um yeah those three words are critical mm. to my foundation so I work in sustainability as I mentioned to you mm. Um, and sustainability, mental health belongs in sustainability. It comes under the S. 
sorry, not S. What I mean is sustainability is now coined as ESG, which is environment, mm. social, and governance. That's the big thing, right? Mm. So I would say mental health and well-being comes under the S, which is social. Mm. Um, now, people who work in my space, um, uh, Emily, they many many of them come with a passion, you know, to make a difference. Mm. Like like yourself, uh, you know, you you've changed careers. <laughs> you really want to make a dent. Uh, or you know, in mental health mm. and well-being, and there are people in the space who want to do good things for the climate, <clears throat> human rights, modern slavery, safety. Mm. Um, there's so many topics in this space, right? So when I got into this space, I, I again, my journey is a complete accident in terms of what I get into. But mm. over the 15 odd years that I worked in this space, I am pragmatically passionate about what I do. Mm. And I guess what I mean by that is I'm passionate in that I want to make an impact. Mm. But I'm also pragmatic in knowing that I can only do what I can do, and I can't I think about that. the rest of the generation and the rest of the world because that's where stress builds up, and that's where you start thinking, you know, are we doomed? Um, it's the glass half full, glass half empty mm. view, um, and all of this is underpinned by a purpose. And my purpose is to follow my dot, mm. and to make a dot where possible. Mm. So my first dot was tennis. Mm. My second dot was venturing into business. Mm. My third dot was doing a PhD. Mm. My fourth dot was actually getting into sustainability deep inside, like deep, deep, deep into the theory and, and working, etc. Mm. I don't know what my next dot is, um, but I'm satisfied with, you know, whatever I do, whenever I can do it. And every time I join a company, I usually have three dots that I want to hit. When I hit those three dots, I'm satisfied. Um, they're not super ambitious, but they're also not itty bitty. They're quite, you know, reasonable dots. Um, and so that's what I mean by pragmatic, like I'm realistic mm. about everything. I'm not too, you know, too fluffy or crazy about what to, what's possible. Mm. Um, passionate in terms of I love what I do. And if I don't, I'm not going to do it. It's as simple as that. Um, and then purpose. It all, everyone has a purpose. Mm. You have a purpose. I have a purpose. And my purpose is to be pragmatically passionate about what I can possibly achieve during my lifetime for this world. So that's where the three Ps come from. I've, I've genuinely been sitting here with the dumbest smile on my face. I didn't realize. <laughs> I really love that. I, I think for me, um, I, I read it and I was like, passionate, purpose-driven, those things definitely resonate for me. Mm -hmm. I can self-describe as that. But pragmatic mm -hmm. is something that is so foreign to me. I'm... I'm a very idealistic person and I like burn myself out by trying to change things that are well beyond the realm that I can actually do. And I think that's right. something that I've learned a lot from talking to you is that like each anecdote mm. that you've told me, you've assessed the situation, seen what you can do with what you have at the time and then done something mm. about it and not getting upset mm. about like the what ifs. Yeah, it's really admirable. And I guess the, the only other thing I'll share with you, Emily, and mm. um, when COVID hit, I was made redundant um, oh, in March. Oh, no. No, it's okay. As I told you, <laughs> these things are what I enjoy. I don't like promotions. <laughs> uh, so you're going to start noticing if you get to know me that mm. these things actually give me joy. <laughs> um, so in May 2020, I was made redundant with three days notice. Mm. Between May and August, when I landed my next role, mm. I did things. I had an approach. Mm. You would think being made redundant in what I thought was my dream job for a dream company with three days notice would be the worst thing possible because two months before my dad went into ICU for the first time and I was planning to go to India to see him. A month before that, I was going to go to Japan for one of my first international assignments. COVID came, killed Japan, killed India. I got made redundant. Between May and August, I did things which I'm really proud of, which are pretty amazing, not just from me, but I mean things that I can share with others. 
mm. um, in terms of you know being motivated, being positive, being resilient, trying new things, you know, keeping occupied, all those sorts of things that are actually quite simple. You don't need to write a book about it, um, but when you bring it all together, uh, you can actually make something of something that's been quite terrible. And so that's the other thing that I want to share with you is I was made redundant. That's probably one of my more recent kind of impacts potentially, which really affected the mental health of people very close to me. Thank you for sharing that with me. I think like, ah, there've been been so many really amazing nuggets of wisdom that you shared throughout this. And there, I do want to say that like, it's, it's very, it's very different from like my worldview. I love having these conversations that really open my mind up into how other people perceive mental health and well-being and how they they navigate their sort of journey. It, it's so wonderful, um, and I've really I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I do want to ask you one more question before you wrap up. Yeah, go for it. This is a, a large question. If you had to tell listeners one thing about culture and mental health, what would it be? Hmm. I think I would say, you know, let your experience with your mental health describe you, but not define you. Mm. I think that's really important. Uh, Mental health is a continuum. People don't talk about physical health, like in broad terms, you know, as they do with mental health. You know, for example, no one's going to say, oh, she or he's physically ill when Mm. describing something like an allergy um, or, you know, terminal diagnosis. You're pretty specific, you know, Mm. but that's with mental health, with mental illness, people say things like, oh, my neighbor is mentally ill. My friend is mentally ill when describing a variety of behaviors. And sometimes I've seen it used, you know, culturally in a derogatory fashion. Mm. Um, so many people, um, also talk about mental health in an all or nothing fashion. They say things like, I've never had a mental health problem. Mm. Um, But the truth is your mental health changes every day. My mental health change, it does change every day. No matter what I've said through this podcast, uh, people may have different interpretations of what I've said, but every day my mental health changes. Mm. So I would say, you know, think of it more like a continuum, Mm. no matter which culture you're from. And on any given day, you might fall in a different spot on that continuum, Mm. depending on what's going on in your life. Everyone experiences mental health issues to some degree, but make sure that it describes you but it doesn't define you. that's the only thing that i would say i love that i think that that's such an important part of recovery is being able to reflect on your experiences and know that it happened to you but not let it like determine the rest of your narrative i really resonate with that thank you so much for your time today i've really enjoyed speaking to you If people wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they could do that? Yeah, I've got a website. Uh, it's basically my name. So it's koshiksreader.com. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure when you type my name in, in LinkedIn, people will get the spelling. <laughs> and um, you can go there. I write a lot of articles, mm-hmm. um, blog posts about not just ESG and sustainability. I also write about happiness and well-being. Mm-hmm. So I'm very you know, happy. Like the, one of the biggest joys I get is when I get feedback mm-hmm. on some of my articles and what people think. Um, if they want me to write any new things. So that's a great place to see some of my my work. Um, and then also you can always reach out uh, through the website to me or drop me a note on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, I would say those are the two best channels to get in touch. Thank you so much for your time today. I've, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. And I really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks, Emily. I just want to say again, thank you for inviting me to be a part of this awesome podcast. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure uh, having a chat with you. I do wish you all the best in your career and hope this podcast continues to be the amazing thing that it is. Thank you for listening to Multicultural Minds, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness of multicultural mental health. 
If you want to find out more about us, please visit our website at www.multiculturalminds.org. Thank you again for being here with us and listening to voices that are often not heard.